Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Didn't act up. We were making it up as we went along. Anybody can do this. And as COVID-19 continues to tear through this community, I hope that the same type of people who joined ACT UP will come together to demand that this government do the right thing and do what is necessary to restore our medical system and to respond to COVID-19 in a way where everybody is taken care of, not just wealthy white people. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. It's too early to tell about the long-term impact COVID-19 will have on the world, though of course in the short term, we've already experienced illness and death and social, economic, and political disruption on a massive scale. Some countries are successfully reopening, carefully, but here in the United States, The lack of federal leadership and the politicization of even such basic preventative measures as wearing masks have combined to make the U.S. one of the worst countries in the world in containing the pandemic. In some states, social distancing and widespread wearing of masks have kept the disease from spiraling completely out of control. But elsewhere, cases are spiking, mainly, though not entirely, in states and with people who have followed the attitudes of President Donald Trump and considering the virus to be a hoax, resisting the preventative measures that have been shown to work, and publicly disagreeing with the best scientific knowledge currently available. In light of this lack of success, perhaps the only real hope that this pandemic will end in the U.S. anytime soon seems to rest on the possible development of vaccines. Unlike COVID, which in some areas has been contained, at least for now, the AIDS pandemic, which began in 1981, was allowed to spiral out of control and it was about 15 years from the beginning of the outbreak until the development of effective treatments in the mid-90s. Even now, nearly 40 years later, there is no vaccine. UN AIDS reports that as of the end of 2018, nearly 75 million people had been infected with HIV and 32 million had died. Some people have been suggesting that what we're feeling now in the early days of the COVID outbreak must be similar to how it felt at the beginning of the AIDS crisis but there were crucial differences. In a commentary in the April 2020 edition of Outcasting Overtime, Outcaster Chris said, Imagine how much lower the number of people lost to AIDS might have been if people hadn't hated gay men and had instead recognized AIDS as a worldwide health crisis right from the beginning. And imagine how you, today, dealing with this new coronavirus, would be panicking if COVID were raging in your community, but there was no effective public response. Imagine the sickness and death becoming pervasive among your own friends and family and asking, pleading, screaming for help, but no one listens. No one really cares about the infected, and the government sits on money that should be released for developing a vaccine or a cure or for caring for those who are sick. Imagine the rage and grief you'd feel as your friends were getting sick and dying and the rest of the world was ignoring the whole thing. Joining us to help us understand and not just imagine is Jay Blotcher. 
Jay is a veteran journalist and activist. He arrived in New York City in 1982. He began writing for the New York Native, the leading gay newspaper at the time, and then became associate producer of Our Time, a weekly TV show about LGBT life in New York City, hosted by the activist and historian Vito Russo. Jay joined Act Up New York in 1987, the year the group was founded. He took part in key demonstrations like the FTA protest in 1988, Stop the Church in 1989, and the demonstration at the National Institutes of Health in 1990. He served as the head of ACT UP's media committee, taking the helm from Michelangelo Signorelli. Most recently, Jay was the editor of Rainbow Warrior, My Life in Color, the memoir of Gilbert Baker, creator of the rainbow flag. Jay is also a member of the Gilbert Baker Foundation and co-founded Public Impact Media Consultants, a PR firm for progressive groups and individuals. This is the last part of a four-part series. If you missed the earlier parts, you can listen to them on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jay. Thank you very much. When we left off on the last edition of Outcasting, I asked you about what our history with AIDS could teach us about how we need to deal with this current coronavirus pandemic. You talked about the danger caused by people in leadership positions who don't believe in big government precisely at the time that big government could be most helpful, including socialized medical care for everyone and not just the rich and privileged. One of the key lessons of the AIDS crisis was a recognition that unprotected sex could now be deadly, and that led to the widespread acceptance and adoption of safer sex practices. As we deal with COVID-19 right now, We've all become acutely aware of the things we can't do, whether it's seeing our loved ones or going to work. So tell us about some of the things that gay men lost because of the AIDS crisis and the fear that surrounded that. You know, the gay community was decimated in the 80s and 90s by AIDS. And the losses that we suffered are the losses that the entire society at large suffered We lost writers and poets and musicians. We lost dancers, singers. We lost authors, scientists, people who could have made this a better world. And they were just forgotten and thrown away because they happened to be gay or lesbian or because they had AIDS and they were shunned. I couldn't even begin to calculate the loss to society of the hundreds of thousands of people who were lost to AIDS. What might they have brought to this world? How could they have, they might have made this world a much better one with music or with a scientific discovery or with an invention, something that could have helped us, but we'll never know because they're gone. And so when I mourn these people, I also mourn America because America could have saved these people. Scientists and doctors, if they had started earlier and shown the compassion, and the politicians, if they had shown the compassion that was expected of them, we could have saved so many lives so much earlier. But important time was lost as doctors and politicians ignored the warning signs and just didn't want to deal with it. And that's the America that I grew up in. And that's the legacy of the AIDS epidemic to remind me not to trust my government and to realize that the only way we're going to save people is by having the community at large 
band together to do the right thing in the absence of a government that can't be counted on to do the right and the just and the compassionate and the humanistic thing that we've put them into the office to do. They are not even doing what they're expected to do as politicians and what they're expected to do as human beings. They don't even have that decency. So after gay men had already lost so much, and given that there was no end in sight, questions about the value of life had to arise. Gay men felt they were losing the sexual freedom they had been fighting for for decades, the freedom to love that society had sought to deny them, and that they had fought for and overcome against great resistance. What did it mean to give up that freedom, considering what it had taken to win it? You know, in 1983, the AIDS activist Michael Callan came along with his friend Richard Berkowitz and Dr. Joseph Sonnebend, and they worked together to create an outline of sexual practices that could be done safely. And they were saying that, yes, we understand that sexual freedom and sexual identity are a large part of the gay male ethos. But let's grow up a little bit here and face the fact that there were certain things that could be putting you at risk for this disease. And they created a booklet, which I believe was called How to Have Sex in an Epidemic, which was very clear and graphic about what sex to have and what sex not to. And I grew up during this period. I was 23 in 1983, and I was faced with, yeah, I'd only been out of the closet since uh, 18, but I've been sexually active since I was 13, 12, actually. And certainly there were people who were debating the issue, saying, no one's going to tell me how to have sex. Well, this bravado and this sense of entitlement really just rings hollow when you're faced with the prospect of your own demise because of certain sexual practices. Some people were cavalier and they said, I'm not going to change my attitude. I'm not going to change the way I have sex. And I'd like to know if they're still here right now. And then there are others who said, okay, well, so we'll change our sex, you know, our, our sexuality, but we'll still have sex. We'll do have sex in a safe way that is compassionate and cares for our friends and lovers and neighbors. It's one thing to be adamant about, oh, sex is my birthright. It's another thing to realize that if sex is dangerous and you're putting people at risk, then there's no glorification in that. And it makes you look pretty horrible and selfish. If you're hell-bent on having sex, that could hurt you and also hurt the other person. So people learn, the reasonable people learned how to mix up their sexual repertoire so that they were doing things that were considered low risk or no risk. And I did that too. And I got through the epidemic and I survived and I am HIV negative. So yeah, there was a fractious argument in the early days of the epidemic with people saying, don't tell me how to have sex. And other people said, don't you get it? If you have the wrong sort of sex, you could die. Is sex worth dying for? Some people would say yes. Other people would say no. Other people would say, okay, this is the reality now, and I'm going to adhere to that reality and hope one day for a cure. Well, the cure hasn't come yet. 
PrEP is an option. PrEP is allowing people to have certain types of sex again. But as I said before, there are many people who seem to be misunderstanding the role of PrEP and they are neglecting to use condoms. They are jettisoning condoms from their safer sex practices and we are seeing a rise in sexually transmitted infections and that is a very bothersome development especially in the gay male community when we made so many you know advancements during the epidemic this is outcasting public radio's lgbtq youth program produced in new york by media for the public good online at outcastingmedia.org as the covid-19 pandemic unfolds around the world some people have said, this is what it must have felt like at the onset of AIDS. Our guest is Jay Blotcher, a longtime activist who was involved in the struggle against AIDS in New York City. We've been talking for almost two hours trying to see what we can learn from the AIDS crisis that might help us understand the COVID pandemic. I imagine it's been very draining for you to have this conversation. Having lived through that time and now seeing how the response to COVID is being mishandled in so many places... I can only convey to you how emotionally exhausting it is to talk about this again. You know, even 30 years later, I just feel every fiber just just aching. As we're quarantining at home, Jay, I think a lot of people feel helpless and don't feel they have the ability to change the situation. How did you at ACT UP during the AIDS crisis deal with these feelings of helplessness as the government was essentially doing nothing? The anger that we felt on a daily basis, luckily we had a receptacle for it. We had our demonstrations. We had the many committees in ACT UP that we could take part in. If you were an artist, you could be part of the uh, demonstration committee. You could create these beautiful signs and banners. If you were a writer like myself, you could be part of the media committee and create press releases. Everybody found their niche in ACT UP, and it really saved their sanity because rather than just read the newspapers on a day-to-day basis and watch our community being decimated, we could do something. Every day we could do something and fight back and know that we weren't just stricken with fear and anger and frustration. We were out there trying to make a difference. So you took the anger and fear and frustration And instead of turning it inward and absorbing it, you boomeranged it out into the world as a force for good. But it sounds as if being in ACT UP was also good therapy. I think ACT UP was the best therapy that anybody could have at the time. Now, mind you, ACT UP was not the destination for everybody. ACT UP, at its height, only had maybe about 800 people and and had many fewer people most of the time. ACT UP was not for everybody, but for the people who it spoke to, ACT UP was a lifesaver. And it's ironic to look back and realize that ACT UP was looked at askance by many people in the LGBT community as a group of troublemakers. Here it is 30 years later, and people are finally coming around and recognizing what we accomplished. But back then, not only did we have mainstream society hating us, but we had members of our own community embarrassed by us and thinking that we were just a bunch of troublemakers who were actually making things worse. But at that point in the epidemic, we realized we had tried to be nice 
and being nice didn't move their cold hearts. And so we decided to respond to this ignorance and homophobia and lack of response with pure anger and expertise and defiance. As a young gay activist, I find it so inspiring to hear the perspectives of gay elders like you who have gone through fights like this. What would you say to people in my generation who want to take on problems in the world today? We were making it up as we went along, and I want to be clear that anybody can do this, that we did it because we had to, and we didn't have any guidebook, and we just did it, and we made mistakes, but we just went along and did it. We realized that doing it was more important than doing it right, just rising to the occasion. What I accomplished in ACT UP wasn't because I was some superhero, wasn't because I had the lion's share of vision and insight. I was just one regular person who needed to do something, and I rose up with a bunch of other people who were just living on the edge of their wits and just had to do something because something had to be done. The lesson that I want people to know is that what we did, anybody can do. And as COVID-19 continues to tear through this community, I hope that the same type of people who joined ACT UP will come together to demand that this government do the right thing and do what is necessary to restore our medical system and to respond to COVID-19 in a way where everybody is taken care of, not just wealthy white people, because this epidemic is affecting the poor much harder, the people who don't have access to the medical system. We need a better medical system because it's the right thing to do. Thanks so much, Jay. If people want to learn more about the AIDS crisis and what it was like, are there any particular books and films you'd recommend? Certainly. For books, there are many books uh, that either are nonfiction or fictional accounts of the early days of the epidemic. And I would urge younger people, especially younger sexually active LGBT people, to read, to learn about the struggles that their forefathers and foremothers took part in. Of course, and the band played on by Randy Schiltz is considered the most sweeping document uh, about the epidemic in the early years. Uh, How to Survive a Plague by David France is a really expansive book that takes up where the epidemic went, uh, where Randy Schultz's book left off. Uh, Larry Kramer, the founder of, co-founder of GMHC and co-founder of ACT UP, wrote a book called Report from the Holocaust, which talks about the work that he did at GMHC and ACT UP. Sorry, it's Reports from the Holocaust. And in Larry's fiery, eloquent way, he discusses that there is a beautiful epic fiction book called Christodora by Tim Murphy. Tim is a, is a longtime AIDS activist, and he fictionalizes the epidemic in New York in the 80s and 90s. It's a multi-generational book and very, very eloquent and powerful. 
if you want to get something that's a black comedy, a book by a longtime AIDS activist and writer named David Feinberg called Queer and Loathing has a very wry look at what it was like to be in the midst of the epidemic and to be young Jewish and neurotic. Um, and many, many films, of course, we have the Ryan Murphy miniseries, The Normal Heart, that premiered a couple of years ago. We have the HBO um, uh, adaptation of the Tony Kushner stage play, Angels in America, uh, which is quite amazing with Meryl Streep and uh, Al Pacino. We have the French film, BPM, which looks at um, people who were in ACT UP uh, Paris, um, a documentary about the um, uh, a documentary about how San Francisco handled the AIDS epidemic. It was called "We Were Here," and that's by David Weissman. Um, of course, the uh, Tom Hanks in his uh, award-winning role uh, in Philadelphia, the 1994 film by Jonathan Demme, is still a powerful film that you know, talks about the early days of the epidemic. Um, the documentary Common Threads, uh, which is um, well, an Oscar winner, and that uh, is about the AIDS quilt and how it came to be, and it tells the stories of the people whose lives are depicted, uh, the people who died, who's, who, who each panel is a tribute to. Um, uh, the film, uh, fictional, well, it's a fictional film based on real life. It's called Dallas Buyers Club, and that is with Jared Leto and uh, Matthew McConaughey, both who won Oscars for that, and that is about an unlikely group of community people who rose up to help people with AIDS when they realized the government wasn't doing enough. And a film uh, that appeared on PBS back in 19... I'm sorry, it was uh, in theaters in 1990 called Longtime Companion uh, by Norman René is a look at how New York City's gay community responded in the early years of AIDS. And uh, that's just a few. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for digging so far into your past, Jay. Thank you, Lucas. So as we deal with the COVID pandemic, what can we learn from the AIDS pandemic? There are eerie parallels between the two, perhaps most notably the lack of appropriate responses from both the Reagan and Trump administrations. With AIDS, as we discussed with Jay, the stigma around gay men led the government to not care about early cases. During the early years of AIDS, when federal leadership was crucial, President Reagan neglected the developing epidemic, to say the least. As Jay noted, Reagan did not say the word AIDS publicly until 1986, five years in. Money that should have been spent on research and care was held up, exacerbating and prolonging the crisis, and it took 15 years to find effective treatments. There is still no effective vaccine. It was even more dangerous for many people who were infected to talk openly about their illness because in many situations that could lead to the loss of their job, their home, their insurance, and even their family, especially if their family didn't know they were gay. So they had to, in effect, come out on two levels, as gay and as being infected by this deadly plague. 
Today, we have a Republican president whose response to COVID has been perhaps even more harmful than Reagan's lack of response. Until very recently, President Trump not only neglected to deal with the pandemic, he actively dismissed it as a hoax concocted by Democrats to harm his re-election prospects. Trump has lied to the public and taken very little responsibility for the nearly 150,000 Americans who have died of COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. What we really needed, in both cases, was direct, honest, and effective leadership. With COVID, this national leadership should have been closely coordinated with the states to give the public specific and consistent guidelines on mask wearing and social distancing. In the case of AIDS, people didn't know at the beginning how it was transmitted or what they had to do to protect themselves. Part of the problem, as we discussed with Jay, was the incubation period. For a long time, sexual transmission didn't seem likely because people who had been in monogamous relationships for years were getting sick. In the end, of course, HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, was discovered, blood tests were developed, the ways in which HIV was transmitted were identified, and people learned how to protect themselves. But it took years. In contrast, we've known since the beginning of the COVID pandemic how to stop the spread. What we really need is what other countries have already shown to be successful. Masks, social distancing, staying at home for a period of time, aggressive testing, a couple of weeks of quarantine for those who test positive, and contact tracing in real time. Yet, it is clear that we are failing to contain this. We all know that staying home and wearing masks can be emotionally taxing, but people who refuse to take these precautions by asserting their sense of entitlement and individual liberty are playing a big part in prolonging this pandemic. For many of these people, the idea of rugged individualism seems to have displaced any sense of responsibility to other Americans. And it's ironic that this assertion of American liberty is contributing so heavily to the fact that the United States is among the most failed nations in dealing with this pandemic. We LGBTQ people have had to fight for our rights. Just when we were starting to make gains in public acceptance during the decade after Stonewall, AIDS came along and significantly erased them. It took a combination of medical advancements and major changes in personal behavior over a period of years to contain the AIDS pandemic. But we have largely, though not completely, succeeded. Back then, the use of condoms was seen by many as a major infringement of their freedom. Today, safer sex practices are the norm. So we know what it's like to give up something you feel you deserve, whether it's being outside without a mask or being open about your sexuality. LGBTQ people and others affected by HIV learn through high rates of illness and death that at times it can be necessary to value the safety of the group above the ideas of personal liberty and other things we think we deserve. This is one of those times. We all have a responsibility to protect each other, especially those who have pre-existing conditions, or the elderly, or people who for other reasons are at heightened risk. So when you're supposed to wear a mask, wear a mask. When you can stay home, stay home. Be part of the solution, not the problem. We can either contain this outbreak or let it hang on for a long time, resulting in needless suffering and death. The choice is in our hands. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. If you missed any of this four-part series, the whole series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Amelie, Sarah1, Sarah2, Chris, Lil, Thorne, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. 
Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time on Outcasting. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.